Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Masperinus, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, think about their work, and unpack the rest. I am super excited about today because we are talking to Carla Monteroso, the founder and managing partner of Bravo Leaders. She's also a leadership coach, a strategist, a racial equity advocate, and the former CEO of Code 2040, which was all about closing the opportunity gap between Black and Latino technologists. Before that, she was the national director of advocate engagement at Health Leads and has at large, has been a really helpful resource to me through my reporting, but we'll get more to that later. Carla, welcome to Equity. Hi, everyone. So nice to be here. Thanks, Natasha. I want to start with just job title and what you are up to right now. Yeah. It's been almost two years since you left Code 2040 and started your own business. So let's start there. What really inspired you to leave and what are you up to now? Yeah, I mean, I love Code 2040. To this day, I love Code 2040. I think the new CEO, Mimi Fox Melton, is incredible. I worked with her for a really long time. And you know, I got sick with COVID pretty early in the pandemic. I okay. was like a first waiver oh, wow. and got sick in March 2020 and was in bed for a year to February 2021. And when I got out of a walker at that point in time and was like deciding what needed to happen next, I was really clear both that Code 2040 was in good hands with Mimi sure. and that there were things happening in the field in multicultural, multiracial institutions. And that while we had spent a lot of time and effort in talking about diversifying workforces, we hadn't spent a lot of time talking about what it meant to manage them. And the huge change that would come when we went from a set of homogenous institutions to a set of multicultural institutions. Yeah. And I had a lot of theory about what was happening to those institutions and left, started working with a lot of both tech and nonprofit clients as they started managing what was a new world that was created at the intersection of the demographic shift and the digital revolution. I always wonder with your job, do you end up being more of, I'm sure it's everything, but more of a shoulder, more of someone who sits with HR and helps them work through processes? How do you kind of show up for your clients when they do need you? Yeah. I mean, I find that if it's just an HR relationship, it's actually not functional. Okay. I'm often sitting with the CEOs and executive teams of organizations and talking about their management and their strategy and the things that they're struggling with. And I'm both in coaching relationships with those CEOs and coaching relationships with those executive teams often. And, you know, every client is different and has a different set of needs. But I think it's pretty consistent to me that your entire executive arm needs to be invested in the building of a multicultural institution or it's not going to work because it's like water on a roof. It always (laughs) rolls down into what it has traditionally rolled down to, which is like a segregated high-wage, mid-wage salaried workforce. Yeah. And let me sit and compliment you for a second because I interview people for a living. You are one of the interviews I had that has truly shaped the way I report ever since. Mm. Oh, that's so kind. We, We first got introduced when Kimberly Bryant was suspended from Black Girls Code. And I reached out to you and you said this quote that, has, I, like I said, it's really influenced the way I report on executive shakeups, which can be a 200 word story. And you said something along the lines of, I think there's a lot of imperfect leaders trying to do their very best. And I believe that the story is about systemic complexity that is popping up for leaders of color and not about any one organization or individual. It's about the poor conditions that exist for our leaders and our teams to succeed with their dignity intact. 
And I want to say at the top of the show, because I think that is a big theme I want to get into today, which is in some ways a good problem to have. Oh my God, we're not just worried about getting someone entry level. We're worried about getting them to that position of leadership and then actually having them succeed. And I want to throw it back at you now, almost a year later after that story was written on how you've been thinking about the state of affairs for diverse leaders. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because the Kimberly Bryant situation was such a Rorschach test for people. Like some folks were like, this is it. Like we should disown. And some people were like, nope, that person is ours and we need to make sure that they are protected. And I like till the end of my days, I will like go to the mat for the fact that we have systemic challenges. That does not mean that leaders are not fouling out, right? Like, yes, I think it's a hard moment because I think power is visible on people of color in a way that it is often not visible on white people, right? Like, and there's... Can you say more about that? Yeah. So I think one of the things, uh, like take a really broad general example. When President Obama left the White House... He did a speech for Goldman Sachs and charged $400,000 for it. And immediately everyone was like, this is corrupt and this relationship shouldn't be there. And was he easier during his administration on these companies? Um, And the reality of the situation is that all the presidents before him had been allowed this kind of relationship with these financial service companies. And we did not think about corruption until it was President Obama. And my first instinct when it happened was to be in protection of a leader of color. And I was like, wait, like, actually, I don't want my leaders getting money, like getting money from financial service firms because of the conflicts of interests. I don't actually think he is being corrupt. He's doing everything that was done before him. And we are just realizing that this could possibly be a conflict of interest because we can see power on him in a way we did not see it on the presidents before him, right? And I watched that happen over and over and over again. And it is both an opportunity and a burden for those leaders to really be able to see for the first time the way that power is structured. And we're getting such a bigger scope of understanding of the way that power is structured as a result of that. And the thing is that once that power is visible, it doesn't go back to being invisible the next time, say, another white leader steps into it. We know that that's actually wrong. And so like what the challenge I think for us is like, how do we hold leaders accountable while also, and like being really clear about their humanity and limitations and like creating accountability structures while also understanding that the reason that we are holding them accountable is that race plays such a large role in the ability for us to see whether something (laughs) is okay or not okay. Yeah, you can't factor it out casually. No, and I say race, but I, I do believe it's a multicultural organization thing, right? Like it's multiracial, multi-gender, multi-ability, multi-sexuality, like all of those things, multi-generational, just like 30 years ago, that did not exist at the level it exists now in the workplace. And it exists now, and our institutions are really struggling with the implications of that and what it means for the shifts in management. Yeah, I mean, and to do a market map for a second, I kind of said at the beginning of the show, like, 
leadership coach can mean so many things. And I think there's a little bit of trust issues on the employee side of like, okay, my company cares about DE and I, they've hired this agency and they're going to come give this talk on how to extract bias or know the weight of bias. So how are you thinking about the landscape shifting? And you said it's a big worry, but how many people are actually worried about it versus maybe doing lip service if you had to talk about it? (laughs) Yeah, I actually, it's interesting. Like I am watching my nonprofit clients address it with a level of urgency that I don't see as much in my technology clients, right? Because there is a mission-driven purpose. Like, well, actually first, let me start with, I believe that we've talked about this as DEI, like, you know, DEI and belonging, like we've had many different DNI, right? Like uh, every single acronym possible. But what we're really talking about is the integration of high-wage, mid-wage, and salaried work in America. We have segregated workplaces. And now we have reached the point at which our demographics mean it is much harder to keep them segregated now than it was before. And some folks will get really up in arms about that. But like 1%, 2% of your workforce being people of color does not an integrated workforce make. Those people have to follow the norms systems and rituals that have been established in order to be able to be there and not be fired, right? But once you get a good chunk of people, like 20, 30, 40% of your workforce being a truly diverse workforce, you have an entirely different set of management conditions, management conditions we have not been prepared for in this country. I want to put a finer point on you know, this might be the wrong way to phrase it, but what styles of management or things that exist in a company do you see being most commonly needing to change when you have a more diverse workforce? I guess people listening, what considerations should they be taking into mind? Especially if they're thinking, okay, yeah, we have a good level of diversity on staff, but I've never thought about how to set it up in a different way other than creating a place that everyone's vibing really well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I think we're going to be in the project of building out what a multicultural institution looks like for a while. I do not think this is a one and done or a one leader will determine the path of this. And I think some of the most frequent commonalities in homogenous workforces are a management by fear and fiat. Like in a homogenous workforce, you have a leader who makes a decision at the top. You've got a couple of leaders around them that may influence the decision that's being made, but they are like following what the person at the top has determined is the call. Then Mm -hmm. they communicate that call to their management workforce, and that management workforce instructs people how to move forward with that. And in a multicultural institution, and institutions who are starting to become multicultural, part of what happens is fear and fiat is not enough to get people to move, right? Like it is not enough change management for people to like be invested. You have to create context. Like, what was the context in which the decision was made? What were the impacts that were considered? What are the trade-offs that we believe are necessary? What were the beliefs behind this? And then you roll that context out and people understanding that context are actually much better able to execute any kind of plans. They also can help you understand the impacts you did not foresee. And I've been talking to a lot of leaders that, you know, part, of having power right now means any leader who has power right now is balancing trade-offs between impact, like the thing they want to do in the world, financial sustainability or profitability, 
and sure. culture, the health and well-being of their people. And multicultural institutions actually demand much more of their leaders in understanding those trade-offs, being impacted by the things that they have said they are going to sacrifice and being honest about them. And I think it is a fundamental skill, like trade-offs and conflict are fundamental skills for multicultural institution building, like talking about trade-offs and how we make hard decisions and how we execute on them, talking about conflict and what we learn from the fissures that are are there when people don't agree on a decision, and the way that anti-Blackness impacts all of our decision-making because trade-offs have been so easy. Like, people have made trade-offs off of Black life and the lives of people of color for a very long time. And so it seems natural in a lot of ways. And that comfort means people are making comfortable choices instead of strategic choices. And I think that all of those things, along with a clarity of beliefs and a true understanding of power, are going to be fundamental skills for running multicultural institutions in a way that was not required, really, of leaders and homogenous institutions. I love the idea of it, of the bargaining hire, because... Yeah, I mean, I just think for so long, it was like you said, it's like maybe these frustrations always existed, but it's only when a person of color has it and is kind of this like uncomfortable speakerphone for it. Do some people get upset? Yeah. But I want to get your thoughts on executive turnover playing into what you just described, which is, you know, I'm not going to say every CEO of color is being replaced by a white person. We don't know that. But we do know that a lot of CEOs have stepped down. A lot of founders, let's talk about tech specifically, have left and are like bringing in a more senior person. Does that threaten any of what you just discussed? Like, and I guess I'm kind of dancing around the idea of like, yes, we have this like, we're going toward this diverse workforce, but I wonder if some of the turnover means we're getting more homogenous again. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a, there's a lot of nuance to this answer. Yeah, best show for nuance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's really important for us to understand when the dynamics that we're enfronting are dynamics we're going to keep enfronting no matter what leader is at the head of an organization. And there are still really bad players, right? So, like, there are people who have been awful CEOs, have been abusive and traumatizing to their workforce in a way that is unnecessarily mean and cruel. And I want to be really clear that that behavior is not acceptable, And there is also a, like, layer of complexity that we have now that is people need to be held accountable for the places in which they fail. And we are at the beginning of creating what multicultural institutions, like, how they will operate. And I do think a lot of the turnovers that we're seeing, whether it is the layoffs or the new management, whatever, often right now are people coming in to create the homogeneity in their companies yet again. So like they do a layoff and they take all the complexity out, right? They slice off the parts of the organization that created friction. And that friction is essentially what makes multicultural institutions more effective, right? Because they're asking different kinds of questions. But a lot of the leaders that are coming in do not have the range to manage a multicultural organization or company. And because they don't have the range for it, they just cut it out. And they're like, mm-hmm. this is dysfunctional. It will not work here. You cannot talk about it here. You are at risk of being fired here if you do. I think my Coinbase. Yep, it's Coinbase. It's a, a variety of companies that have been like, hey, 
we're not going to be political here. Political being a term that gets subbed in for, we're not actually going to be a multicultural workforce here. And we're going to cut it out completely. And then that creates the homogeny that makes a band of leaders comfortable right now. And we're going to need leadership that is actually much more comfortable with complexity in this moment. We're only like 16 minutes into the interview, but I do need to bring up Elon Musk and Twitter. And really, like (sighs) I said before, as a journalist, I absorb this differently. As a Twitter user, people absorb it differently. Employees, everyone has a different take on Elon Musk and his leadership style. (laughs) You know, let's start with maybe unpredictable. Is there any silver lining in this moment of how he's handling the Twitter situation? And then we can get into what could be done differently. Yeah. Is there any silver lining? I do think he's showing in a very public way how cruel turnovers look when what you're trying to do is create a homogenous workforce again, right? Like there's... That's a good answer, yeah. I think most of that happens behind closed doors and people kind of pretend a civility in public and the folks who experience the violence of re-homogenization, re-segregation in their workforce are often left on an island to like observe that cruelty, but we like know what it looks like now. It is really like the details are very visceral. I agree. There was the hashtag love where you worked. There was Mm -hmm. the firing and then the ask for some back and you need to be hardcore. How are your clients thinking about it? Is this a topic that's coming up when you're talking to leaders right now? It's really interesting. Like I think my clients are building for the future often, right? So they're not, they've actually let go of the illusion that they could keep a segregated workforce. They are leaders who are deeply invested in multicultural institutions, doing it at various levels of effectiveness. (laughs) And I think they look at it like a train wreck, right? (laughs) Like this is, and I think Musk has been very public about having some pride in that train wreck and that everyone is coming to look at that train wreck and that that means user engagement has gone up or what have you. And I like, know. you know, yeah, like a house is on fire. Everyone in the neighborhood looks out their window to look at the house on fire, you know? And it kind of puts to rest, like the priorities here aren't even like capitalist priorities. The priorities here are about power from a whole other realm and what power Twitter had given to marginalized users. And I see this as a play to reroute the pipes so that you can keep the same narratives in public conversation that you used to be able to. And I don't think that Twitter is going to like go offline tomorrow and everyone's going to like go somewhere else. Yeah. So much as over time, Twitter will reroute the pipes over and over and over again to honor the kind of social structures that exist in homogenous institutions. Existing there feels very different today versus last week versus the month prior. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And like, fine, that's Musk's project. Like, I'm not surprised by that. Like, somebody who's inherited money from, like, the system of apartheid in South Africa, it does not surprise me to watch them try and homogenize Twitter as an institution. Like, that is exactly who many racial equity advocates Many women of color online said he was. Like, there have been so many people that were like, this is who this guy is. 
And people were like, no, not at all. He's a visionary. He's like, you know, and like, I don't doubt that he's smart at some things, but I don't think that means he visions the world as I would see it. And we currently have a system in which a billionaire can buy an entire communications arm and try to reroute the pipes. That makes me deeply uncomfortable. And that system has existed (laughs) forever. We just can see it in a different way. I think because of how many people of color got power through Twitter. Like we created pushbacks and narratives and like there was so much that would have gone underreported in the last five, 10 years. Oh my God, I think about BLM. Um, Black Lives Matter, Arab Spring, Me Too. A hundred different things that would have gotten reported differently, but for the power of Twitter users. And yeah, I get why that makes some people uncomfortable, why people want to call that cancel culture or woke mob or whatever, right? Like, but what we're talking about is like power is helpful or harmful. It is never agnostic. And the architecture of the current internet does not have any thought to harm in any significant or substantial way because of who architected it. So like he can go try and do his little segregated project. I get that. Good for him. Like he just, you know, like I don't, I would not have expected anything different from that. So I am not shocked by it. To be surprised is is super privileged, honestly, because it means that you weren't impacted up up until this point. And now you're kind of being impacted. I want to ask one last Elon question, and then we'll move on to the last section of questions, which is, I think last week, or maybe a week prior, we had someone on the pod who said that a lot of people are going to look at Elon's move to lay off, you know, almost 50% of staff in such a deep and straightforward way and take notes on making hard decisions fast and cutting deep. And I, I kind of know where you stand on how it was executed. But I am curious, like when you think about these executives making difficult decisions, do you agree with the idea that, you know, notes should be taken on how deep and strong you're willing to go? Or is there a missing piece to that perspective? Listen, like I have overseen a layoff before, right? (laughs) Like when there is like, will I be able to pay these people? Right. For like, what is fair to these people? Like you are making some choices that are really hard choices. I don't actually think the part of this that is the layoff is the part that disturbs me, right? The part that disturbs me is the cruelty of it, the unnecessary cruelty of it. And that there was nothing for people to sign on to but the cult of personality that they were being asked to sign on to. Like, it wasn't like there was a vision for how the company was going to change, what it was going to do, what the guiding ethos of its project was. It was like, I'm the new boss, and if you're going to follow me, then this is what you've got to sign up for and be, quote-unquote, hardcore, right? (laughs) And like, yes, God only knows, 2.30 a.m. emails, so hardcore, (laughs) I'm feeling. (laughs) That sounds like the picture of health to me, right? Um, (laughs) Which to me speaks to an effort to segregate the workforce again, right? Like, Twitter was one of the few tech companies, actually, that was making really good gains on integrating its workforce. The pain of this is actually, is around that. So I think that that's one piece. Then the second piece I'll say is DEI folks, racial equity advocates, like any number of people have been saying for over a decade now that tech is highly mismanaged, that the managers within the tech industry do not have the range to manage true innovation. They slice out difference 
which is where a lot of innovation comes from, and will homogenize, homogenize, homogenize in order to feel comfortable. We have been saying that legitimately for over a decade. And a lot of the layoffs that are happening right now, folks are like, oh, these macroeconomic issues, people have to get laid off, ignores the gargantuan amount of wealth that these companies are producing, like bucket loads in the billions and billions every single year. And if they had very well-managed teams that were executing on innovation, they would not be doing layoffs right now, right? Like they just wouldn't be, even if the economic conditions had changed, because they wouldn't be afraid of their wealth dwindling down because they were still doing the work they needed to do. But they refused to change. They refused to season their managers. They refused to grapple with what it meant to integrate their workforces. And their layoffs right now are a product of that, right? They are a product of badly managed teams who cannot actually produce the innovations that they were blustering about. I hadn't thought about the, yeah, one of those like hidden reasons why the layoffs are happening at the scale they are. A lot of it's just insert macroeconomic climate here yes. <laughs> statements. And I'm like, oh, I need more. Yeah. I mean, I want to end with hopefully some hope, but let's see. Like, what keeps you from wanting to serve tech clients? Like, I guess like there is a world where you could just put your hands up and say tech at large is homogenous, is getting more homogenous through these layoffs. Are my efforts better impacted in the nonprofit sector? Like, where does the hope exist right now for tech for you? <sighs> I mean... I just think tech is a non-negotiable when it comes to architecting the world. I believe we are missing critical public digital infrastructure right now. Part of the reason that Twitter is not profitable is that the service is actually not one that should be gaining profit. Like, it should be about information and a healthy country and, like, all of these things. Oh, my God. That's a separate podcast, 100%. Right, all together, right? But like there are other things too, right? Like I'm on the board of an organization called One Degree and they do a Yelp for nonprofit and social services. It Hundreds of thousands of people from all over the country visiting these places to be able to figure out where they can get the services they need. That should actually be infrastructure the country has. Like we have a delivery issue across the country, right? Like people needing delivery infrastructure, but absolutely understanding that there is a lot of wage discrimination that is happening for people that are participating in that. We can have a network of delivery drivers across the country because we have a care crisis right now, right? (laughs) Like part of the reason delivery is such a big deal right now is that we have a care crisis in the country where both older people, disabled people, and kids cannot get the services they need in the economy that we have. And we could architect a digital public infrastructure that would make the country healthier, an internet for collective well-being. And instead, we have ceded the entire digital space to a profit motive. And my hope is that the further along we get here, the more people can realize that just as roads and highways before it and electricity before that, we need a digital infrastructure in the country. And what we have is not cutting it right now. We have looked at the internet like a luxury instead of the new way in which 
we do commerce and the new way in which we do communication. And I think the further along we get, the more people can start to see there are things that are critically missing. And that is hopeful to me because the internet delivered power. Like I've been telling folks that to me, power is about the ability to change your life and other people's lives as determined from access to information, decision makers, money, about megaphone and decision-making rights. And the internet delivered four of those things, right? Like for the first time in human history, you no longer needed an institution to get like one of four pillars of power in the country. And that is huge. It's just so huge. That's a big difference than how we used to live. Yeah. We could architect for power being distributed in a much more equitable way as a result of the internet. And instead we're letting a bunch of robber rep barons run away with it. I know, don't tell the venture capitalists. But I, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for ending that on a positive note. That definitely, as always, widens my aperture on something. I want to end with lightning round of questions. Sure. I've had before. I will say it's either a one-sentence answer or one one-word answer. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, and I'm going to try and resist some follow-ups. Mm-hmm. So um, the first is, what do you need to see change in 2023? Power and the way it's distributed. What's one small step a company can take to break away from groupthink? Creating a robust and disciplined practice around conflict. Of that. What is one thing you've unlearned recently? Mm. I am really starting to think about my project as how do I make it as accessible to everyone as humanly possible? And as simple as humanly possible. And so the complexity in my language, the complexity in my thinking, like I keep forcing myself to simplify, simplify, simplify so that it is accessible to more and more people. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, I feel like uh, I always want to say something back, but I'm going to stop. Um, (laughs) But definitely a follow-up episode to have you on because Uh, language is such a way to extract people from a conversation, including entrepreneurship, which is, yeah. yeah. It's all about power too. Yeah. Last question. If you had to sum up 2022 in a headline, what would it be? The Great Decimation. Ooh, okay. I would read that, but I actually don't have to wait because Carla, you are joining us days, hours before you go on book leave. Congratulations. (laughs) This is your chance to plug your book. I don't know what you can share right now, but I'm sure people up to listening will want to listen. I'm writing a book right now about power and the way the demographic shift and the digital revolution altered power permanently and what that is going to mean for leaders as we become a more and more diverse country. So I'm excited about it. I'm talking to a lot of different people. There are a lot of juicy interviews with leaders that I really respect. And, you know, that is the project of 2023 for me. Uh, I'm so excited. We'll have you back on the pod when it's live. And is there a place online that people can find you? What's your go-to handle slash platform? Yeah. Um, you can find me on Medium, Carla Monteroso on Medium. You can find me on Twitter, <laughs> Carlita, K-A-R-L-I-T-A, Liliana, L-I-L-I-A-N-A. And that is my handle on Instagram as well. Perfect. Well, we'll link all the things. I'm sure there will be. I'm Carla Liliana on Mastodon, and I'm sure there are going to be many other places. I know, right? Before the end of of all of this. I know. I'm literally trying to get handles everywhere. So I'm in the same boat. (laughs) Um, I'm at nmask underscore on Twitter, at equitypod on Twitter as well. And thank you again, Carla, for being here. My shirt says, cool kids cry. And that is exactly the vibe 
<laughs> I feel like after this episode, just from enlightenment. So. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone else, we will chat with you later this week. Stay tuned for a very special, and I would say festive rerun of one of our favorite equity pods to date. Bye. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch senior reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.